You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And I would like to begin our time with our study in God's Word this morning by making a beeline straight to the text so we can see what God has for us today. It is Resurrection Sunday, and I am excited to explore the heart of the gospel with you. It's for us here in vivid, black and white, on the page in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 3 this morning, so please follow along as I read from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the greatest message any of us will ever hear. These verses contain the essential elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember soon after I had left the house as a teenager, I remember very vividly one night sitting all alone and thinking to myself, what am I going to do this evening? I have a few options in front of me. I'm out from under my parents' roof, so I can do whatever I want at this point. And I remember it just, it dawned on me all of a sudden that I couldn't articulate the gospel. I couldn't articulate it. I had grown up in church and I had answered the call to more altar calls than I could possibly count. I had heard the gospel. I had grown up around the gospel. I I loved Jesus. I grieved over my sin, and I was thankful for the cross. But if you ask me that simple question, what is the gospel? I couldn't give you a straight answer. Sure, I could mumble something about asking him into your heart, or I could hum a few bars of I surrender all out of key, but But I couldn't really share my faith with you, at least not in a concise and comprehensive way. And I think that most of us who have grown up in church, we come to that realization at some point, at one time or another. And it's in those times when we feel so inadequate and so ignorant, and we we don't know exactly how to present the gospel to others which is one of our primary tasks as believers, it is in those moments that we need to be reminded of the gospel, most of all. And that is exactly what Paul does here in this passage. And at first, it might seem a little out of place. It may seem a little disjointed or, or strange to us. I mean, after all, the majority of Paul's letters are full of doctrine and passionate commands. He doesn't always focus on the basics of the gospel itself. In fact, In many of his letters, so many of them don't contain a gospel presentation at all. But that's not to say that Paul ever outgrew the gospel 
or that the gospel serves its purpose at the onset of our Christian walk and that we then move on and it no longer has any bearing on how we live our lives or what comes next. Because, friends, it is the gospel that informs everything that we do as Christians. For Paul and for every believer that is worth their weight in sin, we don't move on from the gospel. We can't afford to. We have to hold on to the gospel with both hands. We have to know the gospel in and out. We have to be able to share it with others. Because the better we understand the gospel, the better we will live the Christian life. The greater the progress we will make in the faith and the larger the impact we will have for the kingdom of God. As I was preparing this week and considering how do I introduce this text? How do you introduce the gospel in its simplized, crystallized, most basic elemental form? How do I do that? Well, suddenly I realized that Paul had already done all the heavy lifting for me. Thank you, Paul. I'm so glad that he has. He sets the table perfectly here within this chapter in the first two verses. And anything that I could come up with would pale in comparison to this Holy Spirit-inspired introduction that we already have here in front of us. So look at how he introduces this text. Verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel. Obviously, the Corinthians knew the gospel. Without it, they wouldn't be a church at all. So this isn't new information, but a necessary reminder nonetheless. And notice that he says the gospel with a definite article. He doesn't say a gospel. There aren't a number of good messages out there. There is only one good message, one good news, one gospel that has come to us from heaven that we can hold on to, that we can cling to, that we can be changed by. There is one gospel. One message from God himself with the power to breathe life into the dead. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not only is Paul not ashamed of the gospel, this only true, incredibly powerful gospel of God for the salvation of believers, He's consumed with it, and he wants the Corinthian Christians, he wants us to be consumed with it too. So he is about to remind them and remind us of the gospel. But before he does, he needs to remind us how the gospel works, how the gospel works. So he says, the gospel I preached to you. First of all, the gospel must be preached. You can't keep the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You can't keep that to yourself and then pat yourself on the back and say, God is pleased and I am keeping the two greatest commandments. That's not how it works. Denying others the opportunity to respond in faith and receive the gift of eternal life and for the Lord to use you in that way to bring others into the kingdom, that is a far cry from loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. As one who has received so great a salvation that is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, friends, we are obligated to preach, to herald, to proclaim this good news of Jesus to others. And then they are obligated to receive it. Look at what he says next. He says, the gospel I preach to you, which you received. 
It's not enough to simply hear the gospel as it is preached. We must receive it for what it is. It is good news from God himself. Anywhere where God's word is preached and then received, good things happen. Wonderful things happen. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. When the good news of God's word is powerfully preached and genuinely received, it not only saves, it sanctifies. It changes a person. It changes the whole course of a person's life and sets them on a path to becoming more and more like Jesus. But that's not all. He says, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand. In which you stand. Again, it's one thing to hear the gospel. It's another thing to receive the gospel. After that, you then have to stand in the gospel. You have to decide. You have to choose to dig your heels in and to plant both feet on solid ground, on the solid foundation of this good news that God has given you. Because it's possible, friends, for us to fool ourselves, for us to lie to ourselves, to, de- to, de- to deceive ourselves, and not even realize it, into thinking that we are saved when, in all actuality, we really aren't. It's possible. Paul knows this. That's verse 2. He adds, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. See, it's possible, friends, to believe in vain, to believe the truth, affirm the truth, sign the doctrinal statement, become a member of the church, even serve faithfully in the church, thinking, surely I'm saved, surely I'm okay. But in all actuality, it is possible for you to still be dead in your sins and to be just as lost as Judas. The New Testament affirms again and again that those who are truly saved will hold fast to this word and endure to the very end. So we all need the gospel. We all need the gospel. That's the point. That's the setup. That's the introduction that Paul gives to this text. We all need it. There isn't one person in this room who doesn't need to hear the gospel, who has graduated or moved on or no longer needs the power of God in their life to save and sanctify them. There isn't one person in this room that doesn't need that. At the end of the day, the gospel is all that we have, and we must preach it, receive it, and stand in it, and hold fast to it if we are to experience the power of salvation in our lives. But that's not even the text. That's not even the gospel itself. Paul hasn't gotten to that yet. This is just the first part of Paul's introduction to the gospel, to the text. He finishes his buildup with the first half of verse 3, saying, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is of first importance. It's of first importance. It's of primary importance. Listen, friend, 
You and I, we can be wrong about a lot of things. You can be wrong about a lot of things, but you cannot afford to be wrong about this. This is one thing that none of us can afford to get wrong. We must get the gospel right. In the hierarchy of doctrine and gospel truth, this is as high as it goes. There is nothing more important for you to hear than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. Everything is secondary until the gospel has so permeated your heart and taken your life hostage for the glory of God and the love of his son. Everything else must take a back seat to this primary truth. Paul says, let me remind you of the one thing that I gave you and the one thing that you received and the one thing that you can't afford to let go of. And that is the gospel. The gospel. First things first. Here's what you need to know. And then he proceeds to give us the essential elements of God's plan for redemption. In a short economy of words, Paul breaks down the gospel in its most fundamental and basic form. And so we see here five fundamental truths of the gospel that are essential to salvation. That's five foundational truths that that the gospel contains or holds on to that relates to our salvation. Number one, the gospel of Christ contains the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. I want you to notice a little phrase that is repeated twice here in our text. In verse three, he says, in accordance with the scriptures. And again in verse four, in accordance with the scriptures. Paul repeats himself twice. Because neither of these events should surprise anyone who has studied their Old Testament Bible. Both the Messiah's death for sins and the Messiah's resurrection, both of those events were predicted perfectly and specifically hundreds of years before they happened. A couple of nights ago on Good Friday, we looked at Psalm 22 and that incredible account of the crucifixion that was written 1,000 years before the events actually happened. And yet they are written with such detail and precision And we know exactly what it felt like for Christ to bear our sins on that cross because of texts like Psalm 22. In Isaiah 53, you have Jesus' suffering and sacrifice so clearly articulated. You would think that he was reading yesterday's newspaper. You would think that these events had already happened. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation points to the cross of Christ and an empty grave. Every messianic prophecy every Levitical sacrifice, every letter of the law, it all points to Christ. Why? Why? Because this was the Father's plan all along. He decided in eternity past to set his love upon us by sending his son to die in our place. And as soon as sin entered the world in Genesis 3, God began to reveal that plan to us. And the revelation of the Old Testament scriptures just continues to grow and expand over time. And it continues to express more light and more understanding until the fullness of time had finally come. And God then, at that time, sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that he could redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That baby will eventually fulfill every prophecy and every promise according to the scriptures. 
because God never breaks a promise. He never breaks a promise, and when he speaks, he settles it. This should encourage us. This should give us great confidence this morning as we consider this great truth because one, it tells us that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. He is who he says he is, that he is completely trustworthy, that we can trust him for everything and anything. He won't change his mind and we can count on him to keep his word. And then two, it tells us that his plans for salvation, his plans for us and the gospel itself Those things are set in divine concrete. They are just as immovable. They will not change. We can count on him to keep his word. That's the promise of salvation. Next, the gospel of Christ provides the price of salvation. The price of salvation or the payment of salvation. We see both aspects here in the text. Look at verse 3 in the first statement there that Paul lists as being of first importance. He says, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. The most important word in that little statement is that three little word in the middle, for, F-O-R. Without it, the good news is only good news for people who like bad news. It is no gospel at all. It's not good. This word for is the Greek preposition huper, which means in the place of instead of, and on behalf of. This word means substitution. And Paul places it here to tell us that Jesus died, not for himself, but for us as our substitute. He died in our place. He died for our sins. He didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins. This perfect son of God, the light of the world, The Holy One who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? Why? Because without a substitute, every single one of us would have to pay for our own sins. We would have to. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's what sin will earn you in the end, death. And prior to that, and Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned, every last one of us, and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, there's only one person in the entire world that Romans 3.23 doesn't relate to, that doesn't apply to. And friends, it's not me and it's not you. We deserve death. We all deserve death. We've earned it. We've worked hard for it. And friends, payday is coming. By rejecting God, rebelling against God, choosing ourselves over God, by disobeying God, testing God, blaspheming God, and offending God. Our cosmic crimes against this holy God deserve a fitting punishment. If God were to open his mouth and breathe a command that that simply wiped away our offenses, he would no longer be a good, holy, and righteous God. You realize that. Instead, he would be an evil God. He would be one who condones wickedness and approves of evil. Not to mention the fact that the problem of evil would still exist. Why? Because you and I would still exist. Because you and I are still evil. A clean slate doesn't produce a clean heart. So sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And someone has to die. God can't just wave his finger and erase the debt 
and then look upon us with favor and love as though we had never rebelled against him. That's not God. He can't do that. Unless someone who has never sinned against him were to take our punishment in our place. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us at the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. This is the price of salvation, that Christ died for our sins. Martin Luther once wrote to a friend. He said, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given to me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. Listen, Jesus came into the world for two reasons. First, he came to live the life that you and I should have lived. Let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why God didn't send his son to earth just for the weekend? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? It's certainly crossed mine a number of times in the past. Lord, why didn't you just send him for the weekend to die in our place, to make propitiation for sins, and and then that's it? Doesn't that seem easier for Jesus to simply show up on Friday die for our sins, for the sins of many, stay dead for a day, and then rise in glory on Sunday. But he didn't do that. Instead, he came as a baby, and he lived a full, perfect life well into his 30s. Why? So he could fulfill the scriptures and maintain a perfect record of perfect obedience to God's perfect standard, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He came to live the life that you and I should have lived. Second, he came to die the death that you and I both deserve. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our salvation by suffering the penalty for every sin that you and I would ever commit against the holy God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You see, someone has to die for your sins. And without a perfect substitute, we are lost. The very best of us deserves hell. There isn't one person who deserves heaven by their own merits. We need a perfect substitute because we have all fallen short and none of us deserve glory. So someone has to die for our sins. Thankfully, though, Jesus, in his perfection, having never sinned, His entire life, he hung on that tree to bear your sin in his body. It is as though he stood on trial before God as the high judge of heaven, and he asked him for a verdict to do something out of the ordinary, out of the question. He said, punish me instead of them. And astonishingly, the father slams the gavel down and it pleases him to make Jesus pay for your crimes. So that now when the father looks at you, he no longer sees your rebellion. He no longer sees your sin against him. Instead, he sees the perfect obedience of Christ. His righteousness has been credited to your account. 
Because on that day when he looked at his son, he didn't see his sin because Jesus had none. He saw your sin and your rebellion. And Christ died for our sins. That's the price of salvation. Number three, the gospel of Christ contains the profundity of salvation. I love that word. Had to throw it in here. The profundity of salvation. That is the weight, the gravity, the great lengths of the Father's plan and the Son's obedience. Look at the beginning of verse four. He says, That he was buried. That he was buried. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think that little detail is so important? I mean, we know that Christ died. Isn't that enough? Why would Paul then include this little detail? Why would he highlight the fact that Jesus didn't just die, he was buried? He was buried. Well, I can think of at least three reasons. First of all, it tells us that Jesus really died. He really died. There are those today, even pastors and commentaries, unfortunately, that claim that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he merely passed out or he fainted or he swooned. And after a couple of days, he woke back up that his disciples or others came to his tomb and nursed him back to health and that he wasn't really dead. Paul puts that theory to rest by saying, no, no, he he wasn't unconscious. He was dead. His soul and his body were no longer together and his remains were buried. End of discussion. A woman once wrote J. Vernon McGee about this very thing. You can imagine what that would be like, right? Writing J. Vernon McGee. She said, Our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? You imagine what his response might have been? Here's what McGee replied with. He said, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for three days. Then see what happens. I don't know if she ever wrote him back or if that was the end of the correspondence, but what do you say in response to that? Okay, sure. No objections, Your Honor. Case dismissed. The defense rests. I mean, yeah, Jesus died. The Romans had mastered the art of crucifixion. And after six hours on that cross, Jesus bowed his head and he released his spirit. He truly died. And he was truly buried. But I believe that Paul also includes this important detail in his gospel presentation because it also shows that Jesus was truly raised. He was truly raised. Jesus didn't recover. He was restructured. He wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. And the miracle of the resurrection is only meaningful if Jesus died a real death. If he truly died and was truly raised. Because these two facts, these two realities, they are inseparable. And you can't have one without the other. Paul shows their connection in Romans 6 verse 4. He says, speaking of us spiritually, he says, we were buried. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He then adds, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus' burial establishes that Jesus truly died, that he was truly raised, and we experience the whole package of that as well when we come to saving faith. But I think that there's a third reason that Paul would include Jesus' burial in this first things first approach to the gospel, mainly to remind us of the great lengths Jesus went to in order to give us life. He wasn't just mostly dead. He was dead, dead, like dead, pronounced dead. He was as dead as you could be. He was dead and buried. When God emptied his fury for our sins against his son, he didn't hold anything back. He didn't go light on his, uh, on his son. He didn't go light on our Lord. No, he threw it all at him. And Jesus paid the price for all of our sins. Jesus could have opened his mouth on the cross. He could have whispered for the legions of heaven to pull the plug and usher him back. But he didn't do that. Instead, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he took it all the way to the grave. This is the profundity, the weight, the gravity, the lengths to which our Savior went to for our salvation. Number four, the gospel of Christ contains the power of salvation the power of salvation. Paul says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Literally, the Greek text uses the perfect tense here, meaning that he has been raised. He has been raised, implying that the event happened in the past with permanent results for the future. He truly died. He was truly buried, and now he has truly been raised. He is alive today, and he lives with an enduring, immortal life. Revelation 1.18, I love this verse so much. Jesus tells John, listen to this, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What a statement. What an incredible declaration to think that the life that left Jesus' body on Friday came back and entered it again on Sunday morning, only this time his human body was permanently glorified. Glorified. And Christian, that is what we have to look forward to. We look forward to the same thing. It's going to happen to us. You may love the body that you have. I'm not particularly attached to mine. I am looking forward. I am longing for the day when this body will be glorified with Christ forevermore. And I know that Paul, he looked forward to it too. Time won't permit us to do a deep dive into what our resurrected bodies will look like. But I like how Paul describes it a little bit later on in the same chapter. Look at what he says, starting in verse 42. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So our glorified heavenly body will be just like our earthly body, only different. Our perishable will be replaced with imperishable. Our dishonor will be replaced with honor. And our weakness will be replaced with power. I can't speak for you, but I can't wait. I am longing for the day when that will be true for me. And I hope that you have that same desire. I know Paul, he couldn't wait for it either. We saw recently in Philippians 3 where he wrote, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the power of salvation for every believer This is the hope that we all have. And then finally, the gospel of Christ contains the proof of salvation. The proof of salvation. Look at verses 5 through 8 and notice that little word, appear. Appear. It shows up four times in these four verses, but this is just a sampling. After the stone rolled away, Jesus appeared at least 14 different times. He appeared to at least 500 different people in at least 10 different locations. He appeared to folks in one-on-one groups and small groups and pairs and large groups in both private and public settings. He appeared to men and women from all walks of life at various places ranging from Galilee to Jerusalem at various times of the day. In this passage, Paul mentions only six of those appearances, but they are all important. And he highlights these six for a reason. First, he mentions Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter. Jesus appeared to Peter on the day that he rose from the, from the grave. We see that in Luke 24, and the day of his resurrection. And it makes sense for Paul to list Peter first. And it makes sense for Jesus to reveal himself to Peter first. Because Peter was the de facto leader of the group. He was the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and delivered a powerful sermon in front of thousands. At the Jerusalem Council, there was a lot of bickering and fighting and debating going on back and forth. And it just kept going on and on and on until all eyes looked to Peter. And he was the one who then stood up and set the record straight. And as a result, the entire assembly fell silent And they stopped bickering, and they stopped arguing back and forth, and they finally listened to Paul and Barnabas as they shared their experiences. In Galatians 1, Paul tells us that after three years of being taught by God himself, Paul then went to Jerusalem, and the first person he tracked down, the first person he met with that he had to talk with was Peter, because Peter was one of the strongest pillars of the church, and her first great leader after Jesus' ascension. So Jesus appears to him first, then to the twelve. Later that evening on Resurrection Sunday, he appeared to the apostles. The twelve is just simply a technical term for the apostles. Don't don't read into that too much because we know there weren't twelve of them there present that night. Obviously, Judas had committed suicide and Thomas wasn't there 
You remember later on, he didn't believe them at first. Later on, he arrives and he sees the risen Lord. So there are actually 10 of them there that night. But the 12 is just a simple technical term for the apostles, for the disciples. In verse 6, Paul mentions another appearance that happened about a week and a half to two weeks later. He says, And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Some have fallen asleep. This appearance likely happened in Galilee around the time of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. When Jesus' followers gathered on that mountainside and he told them to go, make disciples, baptize, and to teach. Paul says that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time and that some had fallen asleep. It doesn't mean that they dozed off while he was preaching. They fell asleep because some of them had passed away. It's a euphemism for death. He's saying that many of them are still alive, though, and if you like, you can track one of them down today. And talk to them directly because most of them are still around. By the way, it's interesting to note that 1 Corinthians was written well before any of the four Gospels were recorded for us. So they don't have the four Gospels in front of them. They have firsthand eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And they were well known and widely distributed throughout the churches long before those accounts were ever written down and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit. And while some had fallen asleep or died in the last 25 years since that happened, the majority of them were still alive. Meaning that back in 55 AD, if you doubted the resurrection of Christ, if you were a skeptic, if you had your doubts, if you weren't quite sure if this was true or not, you could easily track down one of 500 different eyewitnesses scattered all throughout the land of Israel, and they would affirm and confirm that they personally had seen and heard the risen Christ. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. This is the half-brother of Jesus. James grew up in the same household as Jesus, but he refused to believe for the longest time. In fact, Just six months prior to the crucifixion, John 7, 5 tells us that not even his brothers believed in him. But then after the ascension, something changed between the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. Something changed in the hearts of his brothers. We're told in Acts 1, verse 14, that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. At some point after Jesus's resurrection, he appeared to his little brother James. And not only would James come to saving faith, but he would become the leader, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Listen, you cannot have an encounter with the risen Christ and it not change your life. You can't. Encountering the risen Christ will change everything. It happened for Paul and it happened for James. Fifthly, Paul says, then to all the apostles, likely referring to the scene of the ascension in Acts 1. Or it could just simply be a broader reference to all of the apostles throughout the New Testament who were called apostles because they were sent out by Jesus to officially proclaim the gospel as his appointed messengers, as the Bible was being written. 
After all, that was one of the requirements for being an apostle. You had to have seen the risen Christ in order to hold that title. And then finally, verse 8, Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Here's the point. The point of all this is that our faith in Christ is not blind. You have not been called to take a leap of faith into the unknown. There is proof, hard evidence, historical evidence. Our faith is grounded in scripture and history. We have every reason to believe that this is true. Jesus appeared to more than a few, more than once, and the historical testimony of the resurrection is overwhelming. Rome never produced a body. You can go to Muhammad's tomb. You can go to the gravesite of Buddha. You can go to so many places, but you will never find the body of Jesus. And Rome has never been able to produce one. The historical testimony alone is overwhelming, friends. Paul says everything that happened, it all transpired exactly as it was written to be according to the scriptures. And those scriptures, they describe events that would occur hundreds of years after their writing. And not only that, but we have hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of eyewitness accounts, eyewitnesses who know beyond any doubt and will testify that Jesus is alive today, many of which rejected him until after the resurrection, like Paul, like James, many of which would gladly then give their lives and die torturous, excruciating deaths for their confidence that Jesus is alive and that his claims are true. To anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear, the proof of salvation is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. John Walverd writes, Taken as a whole, the appearances are as such varied character and and to so many people under so many different circumstances that the proof of the resurrection of Christ is as solid as any historical fact could be in the first century. Friends, you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take anyone's word for it. History proves. The empty tomb proves. The scriptures prove. His appearances prove that Christ died for our sins. He was buried He was raised, and he is alive as the glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the most important message that you will ever hear. I mean, this is good news, friend. This is really good news for those who preach it, receive it, stand in it, and hold fast to it. It's bad news, though, for anyone who rejects it, for anyone who washes their hands and says, not for me. Anyone who hears this word, this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son to die in the place of sinners and that he did it fully, completely to the grave and that God then raised him from the dead in order to rule and reign and be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters who would also be raised to eternal life with him If you reject this message, 
If you say, no, not for me, or I just can't believe it, it's a little too incredible, or you know what, I can affirm that, I can believe it, but I don't know if I can really receive it or hold on to it, just don't ask me to do anything about it. Don't ask me to change, don't ask me to, to respond in any, any other way than just saying, okay, that's nice, maybe I believe it, maybe I don't. Friend, this is bad news for you if you reject the good news of the gospel. If you haven't received this gospel, friend, change that. Cry out now to the Lord. Confess your sins, repent of your sins, and turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins. And friend, don't wait, do it now. Do it now. The gospel isn't a formula or a roadmap to heaven that you have to memorize. The gospel is a person. The gospel is Jesus, the Son of God himself. He is the one who died for our sins. He is the one who was buried. He is the one who was raised on the third day. And he is the one who appeared to countless others, proving that it is all true. Friend, we are all great sinners in need of a great Savior, and God has provided one for you. If you have not come and bowed the knee to the risen King who has conquered death and is alive today, friends, do it now. Do it now. If you do, then I promise you will know. You will know that according to God's great mercy, He is the one who has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is so much more to this story. So feel free to talk to myself or another believer. We would be more than happy to explain more of the gospel and unpack so much of this truth for you. There is more to the story, but friends, these are the matters of first importance. Let's not forget them. Let's hold on to them. And I'll leave you with this. Sir Michael Faraday, a great scientist from the 1800s, while he was dying, some journalists questioned him about his speculations of life after death. Speculations, he said, I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know that my Redeemer lives. And because he lives, I shall live also. May that be our faith. May that be our confidence in this great gospel that God has provided. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you again for the glorious truth of your gospel, that you would send your Son to die in the place of sinners, to be our substitute according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was dead, that he died completely, truly, in every sense of the word. And then, according to the scriptures, three days later, he was raised again to life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this great truth, this great gospel, this good news that we can find salvation in this name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is an unbeliever, who has rejected this truth, this gospel, that you would work in their hearts, that you would break up the soil of their hearts, that they would receive this word, this message, this good news from heaven, and that it would transform their lives. 
And I pray that for those of us who have received it, who love it, Lord, I pray that we would preach it, that we would herald it, that we would proclaim it to others. And I also pray that we would hold on to it, Lord, with both hands, that we would plant our feet firmly on this foundation, that we would never grow beyond the gospel because we know that that is impossible. God, I pray that we would hold on to the gospel with both hands, that we would hold firm to it, and that we would be changed by it every day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we long for the day when we will be transformed by you to rule and reign with you forever. In your name, we pray all these things. Amen.